Operation Anthropoid. Anthropoid. Just the name sounds dumb. Man-like, I guess? Why that? Who knows what went through the minds of the military planners back in London coming up with the codename for this operation. To say nothing of the film executive that chose to obscure this perfectly good war film behind a name that sounds like a fake Marvel action figure that you'd find in the bargain bin at the dollar store. But it's a movie about a real operation, and that's the real name. Even my wife suggested the title sounded like one of those trashy sci-fi novels I read. And we could spend a whole episode debating the wisdom of these decisions, but who wants that? This film is another entry in a subgenre of WW2 films that we've begun to define on Friendly Fire that surround the resistance movements in various countries that the Nazis occupied. This can be a bit of a sticky wicket because many of these countries would like history to remember their resistance fighters and downplay the local collaborators. This was certainly an issue with Black Book, which, while not an entirely uncomplicated portrayal of the Netherlands during the war, felt like it verged into propaganda in representing the resistance as having been a bigger factor than it actually was. On the other hand, Army of Shadows focused on the French resistance and excoriated the portions of French society that embraced the Nazis, while showing how isolated and small the resistance really was. Czechoslovakia had an interesting relationship to this because while some very effective resistance to the occupying Nazis was carried out, their stories have not been made well known in the West. Surely a film led by two rising stars from Hollywood could cast a little more light on the amazing story of the assassination of Obergruppenführer Reinhard Heydrich? Unfortunately, and possibly owing to the name of this film sounding like a hemorrhoid cream you'd buy at a homeopathic pharmacy, the movie was a giant flop. Even the extremely hunky Jamie Dornan and Killian Murphy couldn't save it. This is especially painful because this is a pretty kick-ass movie about two soldiers parachuting behind the Nazi lines, contacting the resistance in Prague, and then carrying out this long-shot mission that led to a nationwide crackdown that was brutal even by the Nazis' standards. So what I'm saying is, I'm glad I got to see it, and I'm glad you're here to listen to this episode, because there's some interesting stuff here. You kill Heydrich, and Hitler will tear Prague apart. Today on Friendly Fire, Anthropoid. Welcome to Friendly Fire. A little lipstick is the only way to forget what's going on in this war movie podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. You see a lot of scenes of horror in this film, but I know all of us have at one time fallen into the trap of a insufficient compliment or saying something about a woman's appearance that was at the most inopportune time. <laughs> That moment in the club was tough. It was, but you know, they were being surveilled by Nazis in every corner of the room. So in the end, you feel like, oh, he was right. And she forgave him. Oh, she more than forgave him. Oh, she did. I feel like when you are a a trained, you know, commando who who was in London like a week ago training for a secret mission, it's got to be really hard to 
ignore the fact that there are Nazis all over the place. But yeah. if you're like a lady that's been living in Nazi-occupied Prague for several months, yeah, she should. They know, faded right? into the background. Yeah, they're they're a little too chill for being lifers there, you know. Well, you gotta be chill. You gotta be chill when you're surrounded by Nazis. Yeah, if you're not chill, you stand out. Yeah, that's right. If you're too chill, you stand out. I mean, I know Ben would say you can't be chill when you're surrounded by Nazis. You have to punch them. Right. You have to you have to put a black mask on and climb a flagpole. It's like uh, it's like Han Solo telling Chewie to fly casual, you know. Yeah, fly casual. This is a um, an interesting chapter of the war, and um, and one that we don't we don't hear about as much. We don't read about as much. Yeah, the boy, like the major one of the major conflicts in this film is the whole idea of well we can't punch the bully in the nose because the punishment for that is going to be so much worse than what we're experiencing now. And how you come to a point in your reasoning where one is worth doing because the consequences of it are better than what you've been living up until that moment, you know? Like, the the plan makes so much sense on paper, but to hear everyone push back against it, ugh. Well, it's, a, it's an elaborate trolley problem. Right, because right. they killed, uh, they killed this guy, and the Nazis uh, killed three thousand Czechs. What happened was the the people who came down on don't kill the guy. They predicted it. Yeah, well, and and it could have been a lot worse. They threatened to kill fifteen thousand Czechs. Right, but it's also a problem we've seen in other movies we we've watched, where the value of it from a not just a propaganda, but also from a a statecraft. Uh, position because as a result of killing him, uh, as a result of the reprisals, Churchill changed his or changed the 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 UK's position on the on Czechoslovakia and made it. Um, he nullified the Munich Agreement. He, he nullified the Munich Agreement. So what I mean, what are the potential like ramifications of that in the war? The moment the Munich Agreement happens and you're living in that country. I can't imagine what that feels like. Like, is there any comparison for that? Like, the idea that you live in a country that's been given to the Germans? It's like what happened in Hungary in 1954. In 1954... That was going to be my second guess. <laughs> <laughs> in 1954, the Hungarians had done all this statecraft, checking in with the West, saying like, okay, we're going to liberalize. We're going to pull away from the Soviet sphere. You guys have our back, right? And America and Britain and Austria and France all were like, oh, yes, for sure. And then they did it, and the Soviets invaded, and the West was like, do, 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 do. Did, oh, did we say that we were going to help you guys? <laughs> and I mean, the Hungarians resent it to this day. That's why that you cannot buy Coca-Cola in Hungary. I mean, do the Czechs <laughs> resent this to this day? Yeah. Like, you would... You would think there aren't many German tourists in the Czech countries these days, right? Well, I don't, you know, n not to get too into it, but the the western part of Czechoslovakia, the whole what they call the Sudetenland, was by a lot of estimates majority German population mm -hmm. and had been for centuries. And, you know, the original sort of 
bohemian kings had invited the Germans to settle. The Germans had just sort of naturally gravitated there. There were Germans throughout Eastern Europe. It was kind of like an infestation. Well, but I mean, in a manner of speaking. you know, if you look at the border, if you look at the border, I mean, yeah, if you look at the border of Prussia, uh, Prussia goes all the way into into Poland, what we think of as Poland now, and and through this whole area, right? And and Austro-Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for centuries. So there are Germans everywhere, and the logic of of the sort of Anschluss of the Sudetenland was it's German anyway. And so we're going to take it and make it part of the greater German sphere. And then the Bohemian, Moravian, Slovak part, we're just going to, they, they administered it differently at first. And then gradually, you know, they were like, oh, and that's just a protectorate. What was the ratio of Slovaks to ethnically or culturally German people in that country at the time? Was it enough to where like no one was really concerned about the idea because there was such an overwhelming amount of German people living there at the time? It varied ge- geographically, okay. right? The part of the of what we think of as the Czech Republic now that was right next to Germany, like the town of Hof and the town of Cheb or whatever, like they were mostly, you know, they had a lot more in common with each other than, but Prague was, was Bohemian or, or Czech, right? And then you've got this whole Bohemian Moravia, which is, which is the southern part of the Czech part of Czechoslovakia. And then there's a Slovak part, which they speak a common language, but the Slovaks think of themselves differently. I'm just trying to understand, like, did did resistance rise up when the trains and the camps started to get involved, or was it right away? I like, think it was right away. Okay. I mean, if you're if you're Czech, you're like, what WTF? Yeah. I was reading that the government in exile specifically had one of these two guys be Czech and the other be Slovak because. Part of it was them making a case to the British that Czechoslovakia was a contiguous country and that the, like, Czech side was riding for liberation from Germany just as hard as the Slovak side. Yeah, and I I think the Czechs and Slovaks had to make that point because everybody knows that they don't like each other. It's a, it's a, they definitely feel, feel like people apart from one another. And they are now, right? Like they're it's two separate countries now. It is, yeah. And after they after the the division of the two after the wall fell, the Czechs adopted a very liberal uh, government under Václav Havel, and the Slovaks maintained a kind of autocratic authoritarian government. And if you if you cross between the two countries today, you can really see the difference, just in terms of economic development and and culturally. And the Slovaks, like southern Slovakia, really identifies as there are a lot of ethnic Hungarians there, and they speak a kind of Hungarian Slovak or Slovakian Hungarian. You know, Central Europe is a real <laughs> mishmash. We are here to assassinate SS Obergruppenführer Reinhard Heydrich. Before we got on the mics today, we had a, a, an extended text discussion. Because I was looking at this photo on the internet of uh, of Joseph Gabchik, the one of the two one of the two assassins, and I did not see that he was wearing a hat, and it looked like he had the like craziest sloped forehead, like he'd been hit like, in the head with a sh- with a cannon shell. Yeah, yeah. and I thought the same <laughs> yeah. thing. I was like, I was like, w- w- are the people in Central Europe like so genetically different that I've never seen a human that looks like this before? 
<laughs> and and you know, I looked at the picture and very clearly he was wearing a cap at a jaunty angle, but the cap it's a black and white photo, the cap and the brick wall. It's so jaunty. He's basically wearing the cap on the side of his head. It's truly jaunty. How how jaunty is too jaunty though? Well, that's the thing. I don't feel that you can be too jaunty with your hat. But you, you guys don't You'd wear have, your hat over your ear if you could. I do all the time. I put my hat so far down <laughs> above, below my eyebrows that it rests on the tip of my nose. <laughs> That's how jaunty Dan Cubis kind of looks like Jamie Dornan, but Joseph Gobchik looks like a killer. Yeah. He is, uh, he is the thousand-yard stare of a man who, uh, who would go behind enemy lines to kill the number three German. I think of the two top-line cast members, I think Jamie Dornan looks like the gentler of the two. Cillian Murphy looks like he's seen some things. Well, Jamie Dornan looks... I mean, it's it's tremendous casting yeah because he really really does look like uh look like the man himself right he's he looks like Jan uh, cubius cubish boy I, my czech accent is <laughs> yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna miss every single time on, Jan, on i'm gonna say, i'm gonna go with Jan cubish all right but then cillian murphy does not look it's uh it's killian murphy i'm sorry killian murphy does not look like joseph gabschik he looks more like Crispin Glover to me. Ted, hey, Ted, where the hell's Corkscrew? He's making Crispin Glover face throughout this movie. He does that. He does that. That Peaky Blinders thing in everything he does, which is just look like really stressed. Can you think of a role that he's played, or a time in a role that he's played where he's uh, had a positive emotional reaction, like a smile or a laugh? I can't think of a moment in this movie. He he expresses. He at the moment that he realizes his love for his uh, his redheaded companion peer, right? Uh, he actually showed <laughs> that legally that's the term, right? Companion peer, yeah. <laughs> uh, within a, within a revolutionary Comrade contest, companion peer, yeah, that's right. Uh, he does. He showed emotion, and I was you know, and it struck me, but it struck me only because I'd never seen it before. It didn't strike me. The Jamie Dornan. Uh, romance felt real to me in a way that the uh, Killian Murphy one did not. It seemed like they, theirs was a uh, a love of convenience. Well, I don't know. You didn't feel like he he. The thing is, he warmed up to her not because he was because it was young love, but because they were both salty. They were so salty. Yeah, their salt mixed well together, <laughs> didn't it, it? It did. It was like sea salt and yeah. and uh, Romanian pan salt or whatever. Yeah, but also like Lenka, <laughs> like we opened the show talking about that moment with the lipstick. Yeah, like it was Lenka that apologized to Yosef for right. that for that indiscretion. Sure, because she realized that she, that that was bad tradecraft. Yeah, I mean this is a this is that that weird kind of commando movie where there's a lot of spy movie DNA in uh-huh. it. Yeah, and we're so used to Eastern Europe or Central Europe being depicted as a land of spy action, right? Like me growing up during the Cold War, every any movie about Czechoslovakia would have been a spy movie, not a war movie. <laughs> if you're in Prague, you're doing tradecraft. That's right. You're doing some you're doing some uh Smiley's people action over there. <laughs> but this is a war this is some this is behind enemy lines war movie stuff. Not behind yeah. enemy lines like that terrible movie, but behind enemy lines like yeah, they've got like ranks and 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 a chain of command and stuff. Like a lot of the drama comes from just like the disagreements between them and the local resistance 
who seem to have been granted some kind of official status by the government in exile, but don't like, like everybody's kind of like falling all over themselves to say like, this is your mission. Like you guys are in charge, like assuming that we actually do this mission. And that feeling pervades a lot of war movies we watch, right? Like we're, we're taking orders from people very far away. They don't know what it's like here and now, right now. Like, they, they they don't feel like they have the agency that they parachuted in with. And it's scary. With the added complexity of the government, the Czechoslovakian government in, I, I, I'm so used to saying Czech Republic now, the first five years after the wall fell, I was like, Czechoslovakian people would hit me with a, mm-hmm. with a ruler. And now I can't even say it. <laughs> you were saying che- the Czechoslovakia che- also. The Czechoslovakia. Uh, their government in exile was not universally recognized as as having authority over free checks even and this is like the this is like de gaulle's government there wasn't like a vichy check situation well, happening yeah there was tons of check collaboration huh. and so and also within the within the re- rebellious anti-german checks there would have been communists there would have been there would have been a people there who were siding with the soviets there would have been all kinds of nationalists, you know, there. So the government, the Czech government in exile didn't have like a universal recognition. So they're giving these orders and I'm sure there were people in the resistance that were like, well, sure. <laughs> but on the other hand, and wasn't there like on the Slovak side, there was like a government, right? Yeah. Right. It was I, like claimed to be in power and a, pu- and a puppet government directly. Like, like there yeah. was like the Germans understood that, in Hungary and in Romania that it was that rather than just try and absorb them completely, it it made more sense to just have their own sort of fascist puppet government there. Like Vichy style. We can do this too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Is this kind of complexity one of the reasons that Churchill had such an easy time putting together the agreement? Like, well, no one really gets it well it wasn't churchill that put the munich agreement together. it wasn't him no no it was neville chamberlain the prime minister before oh churchill. that's right churchill was the one who uh who tore it up he was against it the whole time yeah. churchill was neville chamberlain the 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 famous appeaser right whose name now lives in infamy for his appeasement which is which is part of why antifa says we should punch nazis in the nose not be appeasing chamberlains look how that turned out right etc cetera, etc cetera. we do say that <laughs> <laughs> don't give it all away ben did you guys know that there was another movie based on this exact same story that came out the next year in 2017 really with rosamund pike and jason clark in it the very same actor plays Reinhard Heydrich in that. Jason Clark plays Reinhard Heydrich in it. The Reinhard Heydrich actor in this film, in Anthropoid, Det has Lef- played him before. That left both yeah. Oh, wow. He looks like him. He acts like him. He's, yeah, good, he's, at, really he's good, good at that job. <laughs> I'd rather look like Heydrich than, uh, than Goebbels. Oh, yeah. Goebbels is pretty bad. Yeah. 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 If you're going to be typecast. I mean, look, this is going to be awkward to say, but Heydrich is a better looking man than, than Goebbels, right? I think we can all agree on Friendly Fire that that's the case. <laughs> I mean, it depends, I, I guess. I don't so feel like you to... hear about Heydrich that much. Like, you hear about Goebbels and Himmler and, and all of those other second string Nazis all the time. But 
I'd, and I feel like I'd heard architect of the final solution with re- relation to other people's names before. Yeah, I, I, you, you make a good point. When Heydrich was given the basically like complete authority over Czechoslovakia or Bohemia Moravia, I guess. Um, yeah. That just feels like kind of a demotion or not that big of a deal if you are somebody that's considered the third ranking Nazi. Like, shouldn't he? Right. You're not like prosecuting the Eastern Front. You're not running Berlin. Like, what are you? You're just in some not on the border of of the war country. All that was to come later, though, right? If we're talking about order of operations, like this whole incident was fairly early was 42, it not yeah so if you're going to open up the front in another year and you're going to transfer Heydrich there and he's your best like isn't this a logical place to start for no, him no there's an eastern front at this point and they're and they're kicking ass over there uh, but is the ass kicking the reason not to send him there is oh, what i'm saying yeah, like like well he's not a commander right he's not a battlefield commander and maybe you know 42 is like peak final solution days Maybe they put him here to to prosecute. Well, no, they say they put him there to 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 quash resistance. Is the resistance greater here than on the front? Well, they're talking about sending him to Paris, right? Yeah, in the movie, right? So I, I mean, it seems like being the Billy Club that's putting down resistance isn't as cool within Nazi land as being in Berlin in a powder blue suit marching around. I think. Kind of a lot of questionable delegation of tasks yeah, like, for uh, for the Nazis and for Hitler personally, huh? Yeah. Anyway, it does. It <laughs> you do wonder about it. And what's funny about this movie and about this plot is it's a, just a small little mission. I mean, we spend a lot of time in hiding with these uh, these parachutists. We spend a lot of time with them, but really, they're just they're just ma- the plan is like find a point where he slows down enough that we can throw a grenade in his car. It's not really a very complicated plot. Yeah, and it's so easy, in quotes, that like whether or not it is a success is secondary to should we or shouldn't we do it. And Well, that and also the whole business of, well, some days he has an armed guard and sometimes he doesn't. But there's also a a kind of thread within their operation where they recognize it's a suicide mission. So... If it is a suicide mission, it doesn't matter whether he has an armed guard. All you have to do is step out and kill him, and then you're all going to die anyway. I really like that conflict between Jan and Yosef about, like, uh, it's Jan who's, like, making plans for the day after. And Yosef's like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't need to think about where to throw our guns after we use them. We're dead. Because Jan... Jan did the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is fall in love with the beautiful girl. Yeah. Now he doesn't want to. He already had shaky hands. Yeah. He doesn't want to die. He wants to. You try not falling in love with Charlotte LeBon, right? I dare you. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody she's been in a movie with on Friendly Fire has fallen in love with her. You know, I like that whole like, like indie rock shag. Hmm. I've heard that the indie rock scene in Prague in 1942 was like not super well established. It wasn't even that well established in 2001, frankly. Listening to techno music. Oh no! I know. You had to stop referring to yourself as the butcher of Prague when you played rock shows there, right, John? <laughs> I butchered their dance scene. Yeah. With my sick beats. Yeah. 
this plot was hatched to legitimize the government in exile and did change Britain's policy toward whether Czechoslovakia was like part of the Axis or part of the Allies, but right. does this movie like make the case for what they did or not? If Hatrix were killed by a gang, would it not have legitimized the the exiled government? Like, did it have to go down this way specifically for the political winds to change? What you see in that moment, right, is that Poland has a government in exile that is recognized by the allies because Poland was invaded, whereas Bohemia and Moravia were subsumed by treaty and Slovakia was a client state. So in order to change the designation of the Czechs to enemy combatants or, or allies, there had to, like the government of, the government in exile executed this plot and that, you know, put them into the, into a position of like members of the rebel alliance. But that's all just, that's all just a shell game. It feels like, I mean, it's just moving hats around. Right. It's like, why, like, why would Churchill need them to do something this flashy to, to consider their claim legitimate? Yeah, that's, that's where my head's at. What's crazy is that during the war, and we never, we just never think about this, there was a level of like State Department kind of activity that still was respecting borders and, there were still all these sort of treaties in place. Treaties mattered. Treaties, you know, like at the end of the the war with Japan, that whole business where the Soviet Union declared war on them in the last 24 hours or something and then was able to get all this territory. I mean, that's, that's all this sort of level of paperwork that still existed. And when, when we think of the war, it's just, it just feels like Oh, it was an all all out and you declared a side and then you were part of this operation. But there were all these little groups that had different status uh, that, I, you know, that kind of doesn't make for very interesting movies, I guess. If you think about the communist resistance in Poland and the free Poles and, you know, and the, the conflicts that were between those groups and the fact that they were all anti-Semitic. Um, you know, that's just, it, it, it really... Like, we like the Nazis uh, for that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, stop clock is right twice a day kind of a thing. Right, and the Poles, you know, the Poles, like, didn't mind the Soviets until all of the Polish officer class was massacred by them. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, I guess those weren't very good friends either. And what this movie does, I think, is a little bit dishonest, which is after they kill Heydrich, it turns into a it turns into a last stand Western and we get right. all the excitement of a 20 minute gun battle. And in this movie, we watch what 200 German soldiers get shot. I mean, every <laughs> single dude that walks through a door has a super cool death scene where he, yeah, but did you read about the real story? They put 600 people at that church. Well, I know, but do you know how many of them died? A lot of them. Not really. Really? No, uh, there were, there were some, there were a lot of wounded, um, but what, I mean, what does it say? And I, you know, I don't know, like, I haven't cross-referenced this amount. Um, I, I spent too much time thinking about the, uh, thinking about the botulism theory of, yeah. of how he actually died. 
Yeah, that was really interesting. <laughs> but yeah, they said uh, they said 750 SS soldiers laid siege to the church, um, and according to the SS, uh, there were five wounded soldiers. What? So, well, come on. They fudged numbers all the time. Well, I know, but we watched... Yeah, who's doing the record-keeping of that assault also? It's true. You don't always believe the SS records, but there's an awful lot of difference between 300 dudes dying and five guys getting wounded. And if you think about a, a gun battle, that can take a lot of different forms. And if the if it was a siege rather than an assault, it just meant that the, they, they cordoned off the church and then sat and fired machine guns at it but it but we watched a real like super good and a super good battle a church is really yeah. acoustically perfect for an extended gun battle scene and it's terrifying no one in there had any hearing yeah like, not <laughs> yeah they, they should have been <laughs> see that shit pouring out of their ears slick they, did, they can't fucking hear you they do that a couple of times in this movie where they they uh, the sound design like they they move the faders up on some ringing yeah like yeah that would have been everyone's ears forever if of course you know most of our they, whole, all our heroes died that whole sequence I mean, you started talking about the sequence in the context of it it being an appendage to this film and its story, but as sequences go, I was riveted. I thought it was amazing. And and that constant retreat of like, it's that thing where like, if you're escaping a, bur- a burning building, you don't go up. <laughs> and and their escape- But they don't have a choice, yeah. right? Like if, if they go down, they're, they're fucked. So they, they stay up to- to save the guys in the cellar. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, that dread increases as they go up the stairs and further back into the corner, like, retreat, retreat, retreat into, into nothing. It's uh, It really builds the tension right up to the end. This movie does a great job with tension all the way through. Like, the tension before the attack on Hydric is also... Yeah. Like needle pegging. Like, and it's just guys, like, sitting on park benches at a corner in the road for a little while. Nothing more tense than that. Not yeah. a great commercial for the uh, the Sten company of products, <laughs> right? <laughs> when you absolutely positively have to assassinate a guy, this is not a good look. And here's my question. Why don't you just use grenades? Yeah. Is it because grenades have a failure rate equivalent to a machine gun in these days? I don't know. I, it seems like if if the three of us... If the three of us decided to kill Hydric right now, and even <laughs> even knowing that Ben is a coward, you know, you know, like people always talk about getting a time machine and killing Hydric, mm-hmm. but I think the three of us could actually do it. Right. I mean, and their original plan was to to have a cable across a road, and like <laughs> stop his car with a cable. Basically, that's out of the, straight out of the anarchist cookbook. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, you could kill him with a hatchet. He's in an open car. And we know they have two grenades. Yeah. Throw two grenades. Big grenades. Yeah. That they dipped in in like uh, canned pickles or something yeah. to, to botulize them up. <laughs> so the guy that's walking across the street who's there to like slow the car down, he also could have tossed a grenade. Yeah. It should have been grenades all the way down. You're, they're easier to pack on your person inside a trench coat. You don't yeah. need to mess with that park bench assembly. He's assembling it blind. Yeah. 
which may or may not have been a reason for its jamming later. God. I mean, Give me in a break. The, so there's in the, some theories that he died from a pulmonary embolism. There's right. some that he died from botulism and that it was like a like a chemical, a chemical warfare. warfare incident. But then there's also the thought that he might have gotten an infection from the horsehair in his car seat yeah. being forced into his wound. Which calls back to Master and Commander. It it uh it took a, a piece of the shirt in with it. That's right, and that's the that's the dangerous part. Yeah, he died of sepsis, they say, but you know, part of it is the German doctor didn't give him antibiotics because he thought he was doing better. And so antibiotics were pretty new at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean the the point is they killed him and it shook down. Um how I mean I don't I don't know if there's a way to evaluate which aspect of the trolley problem is the one that that paid off but they but certainly the people in England had had done the math on it they knew that the Germans would inflict reprisals so right. uh, they you know they felt like the propaganda maybe the propaganda value of the reprisals was the the real benefit to it. Boy, that's dark. Oh, interesting. Right? Maybe like show show how bad the, the Germans are in the press. Right. Maybe they were hoping for 15,000 people getting shot instead of 3,000. It's not like they talk about one town getting wiped off the map, but it, two entire two. towns in the area around Prague were, were like, like every single guy that lived there was killed. They they burned them to the ground and then leveled them. Salted the earth and then took the women and children and put them in camps. Yeah. I mean, and they did that in France too. There's a famous town in France that is left in ruins as a as a monument to this method. You can go down some really awful Wikipedia holes off of this film. Yeah. I think one of the threads I chased down had to do with what happened to the women and children there. And they had like extermination vans, like mobile units set up where they would reroute the exhaust into the uh, passenger compartment and do it on the go, right? That was one of the, the the final solution methods before they finally settled on Zyklon B. They tried everything. Wow. It turns out that it's a real, uh, that it's a real logistics problem to kill 6 million people. If you can believe it, but I think we could do it, you know. But <laughs> put the three of us together, I think we could figure it out. I don't know if we've if we've watched a movie like a commando movie, a raid movie, where the where the raid was. It wasn't an anticlimax when it happened. It was exciting, and the tension had built up. But during, the, I thought for sure it was going to not work out because of when it was in the movie. It was about an hour in, and I thought, oh, this is going to be them having a bad first crack at this and then you know the the real climax will come later when they really do it and instead it's more like a heist film it's like a okay we got the jewels and now we have to figure out how to get out of town with them right right that's it that is the structure of it i mean i know this story and had had read about it lots of times so i knew i knew kind of the the sketch of the plot of this film and it's it's sort of like the assassination of Franz Joseph. It's the same basic setup. Uh, it just, the war had already started, so it wasn't, it didn't like ignite the world. It just pissed the Nazis off. 
And it's not like the final solution slowed down either. I mean, at 42, it was, it was happening but in, in big time. It was big time happening. But there were obviously plenty of, plenty of uh, third string administrators that, that just followed orders. And, and you get the lead up to this of people just following orders, but the aftermath also, like, it's it's a two-pronged thing, right? It's it's the wiping out of villages off of the map. It's the extermination of a bunch of people. And then there's this giant reward, right? Like, they're, they're impressing upon the populace uh, their need to find the people responsible. And the pressure becomes so great from all of these sides. Like, the threat of death and the promise of wealth... Uh, combined to strain Kurda into turning. Right. Turns and then some pretty brutal torture Yeah, produces the, the necessary information. Worst moment for Atta, uh, the torture scene or when his birthday is ruined by a proposal on the same day? He does. He does <laughs> lose. That's pretty tough, He does right? lose a good birthday. Can he just have a birthday like... On his own for but, himself. But you know what? He's a teen. I don't think that's as bad as proposing at a wedding. No, though. it's not. It's it's lesser than that, for sure. <laughs> Have you? Do you guys know someone who proposed at a wedding? I feel like you hear about it all the time. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, Although you I hear about people who the spirit takes and they get yeah. down on one knee at the wedding reception. Oh, shitty. I was at yeah. a wedding one time where I, where I went with a date, and she and I had been broken up for over a year. Ooh. And she was just like, look, I, I need to go to this wedding. Will you go to the wedding with me? You're the best dancer I know. And I was like, yeah, I'll go to the wedding with you. And then we were at the wedding and halfway through the wedding, I looked over at her and, I, and she was bathed in church light. And I was like, why did we ever break up? And she, and she said, I don't know. What? And then we started, we were just like, were, were you talking to each other during the a little bit softer now moment? And that's why you're whispering? <laughs> well, no, the, the wedding was in the, it was happening. You know, it was just like, do you take oh. this man? And I was like, you look so beautiful right now. What, wow. Why did I ever? That's nice. She was like, I don't know. Didn't work out, it turns out. Because <laughs> I'm not presently married. But you were caught up in it. it well, yeah, so I can understand. And I love you, man. One bit of production trivia and trivia really trivializes the... <laughs> What I'm about to tell you is that uh, the scene of Atta's torture occurs in exactly the same location as real-life Atta's torture took place. They filmed it there. In that location. Ooh. Which is heavy duty. Well, you know, that church still stands, and yeah. that, that, that lower that window, window is crazy looking still. It's, it's a place to go to go uh, if you're ever in Prague and check it out, because that window, that bullet-shredded window is still there. What does the production permit look like to get into the, like, torture chamber? Like, hey, like, uh, yeah, we need you to get insurance to make sure that you don't mess up the torture chamber because, you know, we like to keep it kind of like as it was. I'm sure they use that torture chamber throughout the Cold War, too. So it probably has a lot of a lot of uh, it may be even part of a of a kind of memorial. I can't do the mental gymnastics of. Every once in a while, I think, like, did the Nazis know they were evil? They had to know they were evil as they were doing the evil shit, right? Have you ever seen that? And then I think about, like, the torture scene and, like, they're showing a kid his mom's severed head. Like, that's a pretty evil moment. You got to know at that point, right? if you find yourself one of the other guys in that room, 
right? Like not the one pulling the pulling the tea towel off the bucket. Yeah. Not the one holding the knife to the kid's neck. Just like the third guy that's like there waiting for the intel. You go like, hmm. Maybe I have backed the wrong horse. And if you chase that all the way down to the idea earlier, I think, John, you were saying, like, like you just go along with it, this this movement. Like, you don't want to resist because it's this monolithic thing. You're just, to protect yourself, you just go with it. When you're going with it, you hear about the head in the basket. Like, that trickles down. You know what you're complicit in, right? Have you ever seen the Mitchell and Webb sketch, Are We the Baddies? Yeah. Yeah. Are yeah. we the bad? We've Are got we skulls bad? on our on our caps. <laughs> Can't think of anything good about skulls. The thing the thing that This the, is why not all Nazis isn't a viable defense for this. Yeah, but we've seen like our own countrymen depicted in movies doing shit like this. Like Sicario has a torture scene. Uh Zero Dark Thirty has a torture scene. If you're in Prague in nineteen forty two, the Germans appear to be winning the war. Like super duper winning it. chance, according to Hirohito. Right. You are, you're living in a city that has been ruled by Germans far away, first from Vienna and then from Berlin. Like, Germans are not strangers to you. You know them well, and you know their culture well, and a lot of Czechs speak German. And so you're doing math where you're saying, well, it looks like we're ruled by Germany now, and Germany is going to be an extremely powerful world empire, and who knows how long that's going to last. And so everybody in that situation is making a calculation that's, that's not based on that. I mean, this is, the, this is the ultimate question, and we're asking it now of ourselves in America, which is, like, what is your personal breaking point? Where are you willing to put yourself on the line, sacrifice yourself even on principle on, uh, is what is the, what's the line? And for a lot of people, it was here, the, you know, children in jails on the Mexican border, you know, everybody has a breaking point. But for we, some people it's seeing their taxes increase. Right. And, <laughs> and for some people it is just that, you know, they're stealing our jobs, right. but, but whatever it is, right. Like in America today, we have not, like there is not a widespread rebellion. No one has taken up arms and it's because everyone is waiting it out, right? They think that a year from now, it's going to be different. Two years from now, something's got to, got to change. And I think in these central European countries, we think of the Germans as just the baddies, but they know them intimately and they've known them for centuries and they're making it They're They're not thinking about like today is this my line. They're thinking about two years from now, Am I going to be successful or am I going to be dead or am I going to be in jail? And well, that's kind of how the Jamie Dornan character is thinking too. He's like, mm-hmm. he's like, I want to kill, I want to whack this guy, but then I want to like have a white picket fence and a family, right? Like a nice apartment that looks over the Charles Bridge, which is not really the right mindset to be in if you're the resistance fighter. <laughs> guy no especially not one of two that's parachuted in there on a suicide mission to do one goddamn thing (laughs) on the wikipedia page about operation anthropoid it says that uh this plot was hatched in 19 late 1941 when the allies thought that soviet capitulation was very likely yeah and 
I'd, I'd never read that uh, that we thought that the USSR was not going to make it through the war. When Hitler uh, violated the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin was so shocked and sad that he basically went to bed and stayed in bed. And the Germans were just running roughshod over Ukraine and Belarus and just like on their way. And they were like knocking on Stalin's door like, can we get some? And Stalin was sure he was going to. Stalin's like, I thought I knew that guy. Exactly. And and they were Stalin was convinced. I've got a a weird mustache. You've got a weird mustache. (laughs) We've got some agreements together. What happened to our love? Stalin was convinced there'd be a coup d'etat that he had screwed up so badly that he was, as soon as he woke up and came out the door, there was going to be a bullet waiting for him. And he was stunned, stunned that the Politburo or whatever was like, Stalin, what do we do? Like they didn't get rid of him when they could have. So I think, yeah, it's not, the the conclusion was not foregone. Stalin, he's just like Mm. us. When our friends disappoint us, I think we often get into bed and don't leave for a couple of days. Get into the bathtub. Yeah, it's nice to hear that you can be, you can have a depressive personality and still rise to the level of autocrat. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's still available to all of us. Yay! (laughs) I have always wanted to ride into Paris at the head of a column of tanks. Hmm. So, so far, no one has, like, history hasn't allowed it, but I'm still young, youngish. Yeah. I, I really loved some of the special effects in this movie. When when the movie opens and you realize, like, it opens in darkness and the first we see is almost like a sort of first person, open your eyes on the ground, you hear like a oof, and then we're on the ground. And it felt like a pretty cheap way to start a parachuter movie. Like, yeah, we could have started on a parachute, like a shadow of a parachute. And I thought, is this some low budget thing where they couldn't even show up somebody parachuting? (laughs) But then they do this amazing. They really managed to show Prague in 1942. Right, They do these sort of panoramic shots of Prague. We see the Charles Bridge with Nazis driving over it. We see, uh, we see like a lot of different sets and settings. I was impressed with the, with the way they set the scene, even though most of the movie is, done, you know, is set in a three-room apartment. I was totally surprised by this movie. I, I saw what it had made at the box office and saw that it was a pretty recent film and I just assumed that it was going to be pretty uh, like a, a low rent piece of shit the way USS Indianapolis colon men of courage was <laughs> and I thought it was pretty pretty great it was a it was a nice tight little movie oh boy it wasn't little though it was two hours it defied expectations this is one of those very stylish well-constructed good-looking films that surprises when you hear that the director and cinematographer are the same person. Sean Ellis both directed and shot the film. That's usually not a good sign. It's just a degree of difficulty that you don't often see. And I feel like in the friendly fire, Oove, when we get it, it means it's actually a good sign. Because Beasts of No Nation was a, was a Kerry Fukunaga shot and directed film 
we have this one. I don't know what our third yeah. is to make it a real role. Yeah, but well, what are some of the other movies we've, in our oeuvre? We've had some good experiences with that kind of uh, division of labor. Is that is yeah. that something that they did more often in the old days, or is the in the old days was it much more defined the roles, cinematographer and director? I think in I the think it old was days, much more defined. Yeah, the studio system. Yeah. So this is it's an indie yeah. move. I mean, it's a it is a lot to shoot your own movie. Like that's th- those are two super different jobs, like directing and and shooting. And he also co-wrote the script. Like, yeah. Uh, it's like produ- it's like uh, producing your own record. Yeah, you shouldn't do it. Really, I'm I'm here to tell you, living proof. They are the postman, and I'm the letter writer. Period. But it was a good looking movie, and I felt like the I felt like the acting was sort of great throughout. There wasn't anybody that took me out of the film. And, yeah. And the, I think the movie was well explained within itself. Like the internal geography made sense and the plot at least made sense. The church assault is a really complicated scene and, and it's very like you never get turned around. You're you're following it the whole way through. And like this, like they like set up and pay off strategy like within that scene like oh like like fill the fill the staircase with with busted up furniture and then like suddenly there's a uh, a grappling hook pulling the furniture down it's fun to see those things like play out over the course of that scene yeah that sequence is so strong because they're cutting back and forth between what's happening in the crypt and what's happening up above and you know their only knowledge of what's happening is what through what they hear and if you're in the crypt, all you're hearing is a war zone until that final gunshot. Just amazing. I thought the film also did a really good job in introducing tertiary characters and giving you enough to know them mm-hmm. with. Like we get to know that family that they're hiding out with and obviously the girlfriends of our two main characters. But then there's everyone else that's involved in the resistance and you have a pretty good sense of where people are in terms of their... Uh, they're agreeing or disagreeing with the plan based on very few scenes. I thought it was uh, hyper-efficient that way for how many characters we're introduced to. There aren't really any throwaway parts or characters here. That was well done that way. I agree. I, I really like the Toby Jones character. Oh, I love a Toby Jones. That's great. His dispute with uh, the Marcin Dorachinsky uh, character, like yeah. the... Like they have a, f- a fully fleshed out conflict that is like a C storyline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, that moment before the attack when they're arguing over the table about like, well, I got orders that we're not going, but these orders say that we are. Yeah, Toby Jones gave us a. I mean, he he's really a key player in any one of these spy movies. As soon as he shows up, you realize, oh man, there's there are powers behind powers. Yeah. But yeah, that was a tense thing. And imagine, imagine like being on the ground in a situation where you're getting orders basically by carrier pigeon, mm-hmm. and they are all only five words long, like "Go for victory, stop." Right. You know, uh, and you're like, "What am I? What is that supposed to mean?" There's that mole in the house that we don't know at all. Basically, he's squirreling notes out of the place that have to do with whether or not Hadric has defenses rolling out with him and right. and the timeline for those and that idea of accepting and taking action 
based on information you're getting from a guy like that mole or people at HQ that are so far away and not even close to the situation that you're living in that moment. Right. It's so hard to know if you can trust that mole. Yeah. Given how paranoid the resistance are when they show up. Yeah. That paranoia suffusing every decision that they make is so well established and well 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 seen through the whole film. Is that a technique, Ben? You think that that like we know so many people so little, is that one of the ways that the film uh injects its paranoia? Like you can't almost by rule you can't know anyone very well in this film because you get these these vignettes with them. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, it seemed like the the guy that was keeping keeping the schedule for them and passing it through the window, we didn't really get to see his face ever. It was always kind of slightly obscured, mm-hmm. and that felt intentional. Like, wasn't there a point where you thought Ladislav was maybe turning? Yeah. Or an agent for the other side? Yeah, he was for sure the guy I was expecting the camera was going to turn around and find when when one of them does turn, and... It's a really nice surprise when you realize that it was one of the one of the other parachutists. You know, and I guess all the parachutists were actually um, Czech or Slovak. So, so you can kind of see that they have the same struggles as the you know as everyone else there. Yeah, Ladislav, as played by Mar- Marcin. No, it's not a Czech because it doesn't have a Gaduk. It's Marcin. Doro Sinchki, Sin Simitsky. Anyway, <laughs> he uh, Max Funkenstein <laughs> dot sex. He uh, he does such a great job of making it seem like he is maybe the baddie, but then when he when he reveals his motivation is just fear of the of what's going to happen to the ch- to the Czech people. It's extremely yeah. convincing moment, like a he. He shows emotion for the first time, and then we never see him again in the film. And it it's a it's very moving. It's a kind of t- very moving tentpole yeah. moment. Well, and it's and it's very real. Like it's it's the thing that that holds all kinds of resistance back. Is like what will happen in reaction to this will be bad one way or another. And he's not wrong. Like he, he may be wrong. Like in the like. 30,000 foot view of the thing but nothing he's saying is incorrect right you know well and who knows if he was wrong we don't we don't know what the uh, what would have happened if right if Heydrich had died as the result of something else right if there had been if he died in a bomb or if they'd made it if they yeah if they'd made the car crash look like an accident or something right i mean i wondered if 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 hydric had died just like right away if if the reprisal would have been different more you know right worse who knows sure if he if they'd shot him it might have just been like hmm. the executions began immediately how yeah. would this movie have been better we spend so much time really in the personal with these guys. Like we almost go to the bathroom with them for most of the movie, <laughs> right? And we're we do a lot of close ups and we're just really with them. We go to the bathroom with mom. She doesn't come out. That's right. We do go to the bathroom with mom. That's 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 oof. You must be confusing us with other more of it. But at the end of the movie, the last twenty minutes, we get into this adventure gun gun movie. If we had gone instead, if we had zoomed out at that moment and had and had met a bunch of 
people at the political level and watched the reverberations of the incident throughout the halls, would that have been better or would that have been confusing? Because because that, that's the thing that feels missing to me. I didn't I didn't feel like there was a the larger context. Yeah, I didn't feel like, wow, I wish this movie had more exciting gunfights, particularly ones <laughs> that 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 play out sort of not as they did in history. Like I feel, I feel like your point, Adam, that the SS is an unreliable narrator is true. But if the, if the Czech rebels had killed a hundred German soldiers as part of their resistance, that would have been a real talking point among the Czechs, right? There would be plenty of documentation of it. That gun battle wouldn't be characterized in all the stuff I've read as like, it was a siege and then they then they have end, ended up killing themselves. There would have been some notation of like it was a siege where the Germans like sent wave after wave of soldier. So anyway, we see a we see a big battle that didn't happen that way in this movie to give us some extra Hollywood finger on the taint kind of stuff. And honestly, it might. I mean, I, Ben did this movie do a, a bunch of trade. Did it sell a bunch of tickets? No. Right. So if you're going to make not a movie that a lot of tickets that doesn't even recoup, like why not? Worldwide gross was five million dollars against. Let's see if they have the budget. I don't ever remember seeing a trailer for this. No. I mean, it's an esoteric story, and so why not make it a political thriller? This movie, I feel like needed needed somebody standing behind a desk pounding on it. It needed more boat dads to get the boat dad demographic in the door. <laughs> Where was the boat dad? Yeah, boat dad pays full price for his ticket. We had bathroom sure. mom. We did. Cyanide mom. <laughs> oh man, can we can we do a cyanide mom uh, like white window decal <laughs> <laughs> for our uh, online merch? That's the offerings. That's the parenting book that was way overshadowed by the tiger mom series of books cyanide mom very unpopular <laughs> or we could do the the whole family like dad mom four kids and a dog but they're all biting cyanide capsules all the way down uh, yeah that's a nice sticker for a minivan is yeah. that our new shirt i don't know man cyanide family i mean it would be on brand for us to release a shirt that nobody wants <laughs> yeah so do you take the cyanide you guys or do you shoot yourselves in the head or do you go out in a blaze of glory? Oh, this is uh, a great question. You know, like we uh, see one guy do the belt and suspenders of take the cyanide capsule and then shoot him. They call that the Hitler. You can <laughs> I think everyone can agree. This is something that everyone can agree on. You don't want to be captured. Right. So no matter it's what fair that they call that the Hitler, because this guy kind of came up with it. He did. He know. did it first. Hitler was just biting his rhyme. I gotta say there's something about jumping on the grenade that that has some appeal to me. Jumping on the grenade. You know, it takes a little bit of the agency out of it because, like, you're not biting the cyanide capsule, you're not pulling the trigger, but there's something, I think, that speaks to a, a type of heroism where, like, valor. If, if the little, like, the, the spinny grenade goes up the to the balcony, masher. like, you could, you're, you're trying to save someone else by jumping on that thing. Someone else who's going to die in three seconds. And you know, you know that's going to be fast, right? Grenade? I think I'd be grenade guy. Ben? Is the cyanide capsule glass? Yeah. Are they biting through glass? Yeah, you crack it. I don't think I could get myself (laughs) up to biting through glass. If you swallowed it? 
I don't know. It, it would just go through you? Be- yeah, the gla- glass isn't going to digest. You clench down on the shit out and you break it. That's that's a bad way to go. <laughs> <laughs> you think you've made it. So Home free! <laughs> so what do you do, Ben? Because it takes an awful lot of val- uh, glory. I mean, what am I trying to say? It takes an awful lot of guts to shoot yourself yeah. in the head. That's a that's a pretty powerful trigger I'm, pull. I mean, I don't want to be the guy that constantly rings this bell, but <laughs> I I've chosen a career to keep myself out of this kind of situation. <laughs> and and the thinking about it. Yeah. But you've got a, you've got a situation, right? Like Ralph Lauren is at the door, Ben, and he wants <laughs> all his clothes back. <laughs> Do you bite the cyanide capsule or do you shoot yourself in the head or do you go out guns blazing? I would just yell, I know it's really pronounced Ralph Lauren. Leave me alone. (laughs) See, for me, I feel like there's a, there's some kind of internal prohibition on suicide, even in a situation where your fate is sealed. I think that's why I chose the grenade. It's because that doesn't feel like suicide. No, it doesn't. It feels like death in battle. Yeah. And I feel like if you've got if you've got machine guns, you know, just like raking the building, you're you're assured a death. They're never going to capture you if you just if you go out through that window like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and just get torn apart, guns blazing. Yeah. You know, they're you're going to you're going to go down as as at least the guy that died fighting. I can't believe that we have gone this many episodes without this question. Let us know what you think by going to <laughs> MaximumFun.org slash donate and donate $5 if you would do the cyanide capsule, $10 if you would do gun to the head, $35 if you would do the uh, the grenade. Well, wait, there, there's a fourth option, which is guns blazing. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's, uh, that's $200 a month. <laughs> Yeah, go to go to maxfunkenstein.sex and write to Adam. Show us your receipt and uh, and we'll furnish you with the means. I don't know. <laughs> I need to get my family out of Prague. Ben and I were were speaking very positively about the style of this film and its stylishness. And I think one yeah, one shot on sixteen millimeter. What? Whoa! One moment uh, that is pretty filled with a kind of style is uh is Yosef's death at the end he's in the crypt things are really bad down there hard oh, to hard yeah. to know if you're going to measure who's got it worse like we're doing a lot of uh, of of deep questions would you rather be up in the balcony or would you rather be in the crypt balcony yeah i think so too cuz they're filling the crypt with water but you're right in that final scene We've got the light shining down through the shower of water. It's it becomes an otherworldly. It's ethereal. <laughs> I wanted to start saying the word, and then I wanted you to finish it for a correct pronunciation. <laughs> but this is one of those scenes where you get a maximum style because Yosef sees Lenka before he dies, and you see, and everything slows down. You see her angelic welcome of him to whatever post-death existence he will have. Uh, The candle is extinguished, bang, into the water, it's over. Did you like that? No. I thought it was, like, an absolutely weird choice. 
in a movie where there was a big swing. There was none of that. No even suggestion of it. I admired the swing to use Ben's terminology. Like it got super stylish at the end, but I, I was there for it. Really? Yeah. No, I kind of liked it too. I kind of backed. I like recoiled, instinctively recoiled. Like what? What is the? Whoa! I think in nine out of ten other films, that part fucking sucks. But for whatever reason, it works here. Like, like th- reading about it on paper, like if you're looking at the script, like the angelic beauty of Lenka reaches for Yosef. A candle yeah, becomes I, submerged. I reach for the red pencil like, when my buddy Sean Ellis passes me his script. Totally. Uh, yeah. For that part. I don't know how this makes it to to its shooting day. I mean, it's very but as beautiful. A, as a sequence, I think it works, and it's, I can't explain why. It's it beautifully shouldn't. made, but it's just like it's just like Obi-Wan or whatever. Like, where does... What what does this say about the director's idea of what heaven is? Or is he hallucinating? I think he's hallucinating. But why would he be hallucinating? He's in the middle of a battle. That's the wrong time to start hallucinating. Try to imagine a film where it doesn't end like that. And instead, it's just Yosef's POV. And he's down there struggling to swim. And then bang. I mean, do you think this is Sean Ellis going like... We've seen a lot of awful stuff. We've seen a head in a basket. We've seen some torture. We've seen atrocities. Like, this is a way to inject some hope at the end. Hope during the worst moment. That you go to heaven and your girlfriend is there? You, Whatever you might believe, you may believe something totally different from Yosef, but it is comforting to feel like at the end of his story he may have achieved something, some some comfort. I, I wanted to see him shoot himself in the head and then see Churchill stamp <laughs> a piece of paper with a stamp and go, I recognize this Czech Republic. I am in a state of nature. <laughs> and then credits roll. I feel like those wow. are two different naked directions. Churchill. Yeah, naked yeah. Churchill recognizing the Czech Republic. That's a different kind of angelic. <laughs> Yeah, we see the that's, cherubic. That's cherubic. Yeah, <laughs> fuck. Sorry. Damn it. <laughs> I see the word forming on your lips, and yeah. I just jump, <laughs> jump in there. Yeah, you're at an advantage, Ben. At your remove. Yeah, uh, we've talked a lot about things that this movie got right and a couple of things it got wrong. But you want to hear something it got really wrong? All right. So wrong that it wound up in the goof section on IMDb. Yeah. When they first arrive in Czechoslovakia. Yen and Joseph attend a New Year's party with Marie and Lenka, where they attempt to carry out their assassination plot. Four months later, they are all in light outerwear. While a warm day in April certainly is possible, the trees and shrubs in the background along and along the street are in full bloom, oh. well past what might be expected at the end of April in Prague. The European city at the same latitude as New York is Madrid. Prague is 10 degrees further north, approximately 700 miles. The trees should still be bare, as they are just starting to bloom in New York at the end of April. Now, I'm going to take a bunch of issue with that, because the, the because Europe, due to the jet stream, uh, yeah. Europe has a much warmer climate at a higher latitude than the East Coast yeah. of the United States. Hmm. So although Madrid and New York, yeah, we'll, we'll just use this person's own specious comparison. Madrid and New York. That was the thing that, I, I pulled this one because this person was 
so careful to to back up their argument with a lot of very like smart sounding stuff, but it just seemed like the my uh, my pedant doth protest too much. Yeah, and Madrid and New York don't have the same climate. They may be at the same latitude, right? <laughs> Although I was on the phone with a guy in Madrid yesterday, and he was a big-time asshole, so they've got that in common. I thought the costuming in this film was really impeccable, and I think you lose something if you bundle them up. I think what they were wearing was was really nice. It was. There, there, was, there were a lot of um, good outfits. Good outfit movie. What did you think of Toby Jones's frames, John? I liked them. I wondered about them. There was a moment where where there were some, you know, what what this movie is is a good shirt collar movie. Because there Ooh, yeah. there are several moments where we're what we're seeing uh we're seeing guys depicted from behind and you can see the fit and texture of their shirt collars and they all felt right. They all felt like made out of the right material. They were stiff in the right way. They were they were they're just the right dimensions. And there's one scene where I was admiring the shirt collars and then it switched over to Toby's glasses and you saw the temple, you saw them in profile and you could see the way the temple finished behind his ear and it felt right. And I was like, bravo, tortoiseshell. Yeah, I feel like when you put Toby Jones in your movie, you're going to work with him on the glasses a lot yeah. because you need that scene where he <laughs> takes off his glasses and looks at them thoughtfully. Wipes them maybe off. Maybe wipes yeah. them off a little bit. I yeah. feel like that is a... That is a thing about a Toby Jones performance. You got to have it. I want to clarify for our yep. audience that I am capable of admiring a shirt collar and not getting lost. Like I can continue to see the film. I don't just like <laughs> forget about what's going on. Are you getting accused on uh, no, I online just, of... Uh, I just heard myself talking and was like, shirt collar? How far out of the plot do you have to be to care? But I, it's just a thing. I just see it. I see it out of the corner of my eye, but it does matter. It it's does a sign matter. of great intelligence to hold both a shirt collar and a plot line in your brain at the same time, John. Because that's the type of thing that'll, that'll, that'll spook me or, you know, uh, like walk me out of a, a movie. It's just like, nope, <laughs> nope. I hate, I, I almost hate myself for it, but... But something like that causes me to fall deeper in love. <laughs> mm. There are so many other reasons for self-hate, John. I would hope that's not yours. <laughs> no. Well, one part of the show uh, where I hate myself every time is the construction of the rating system we use to review the film we've just discussed. No shortage of... Memorable objects in Anthropoid. Only one object gives comfort, though, and that is uh, the meditative clip-loading scenes that we get a couple of in this film, when I feel like you definitely get a, uh, a Butch and Sundance vibe from Jan and Yosef. When, uh, when Jan starts to fall apart the day before the mission, he starts hyperventilating, and it's Yosef that takes him into his arms and asks him to remember the training. Mm -hmm. The training to steady your mind and your breath involves meditatively loading a clip with bullets. Mm -hmm. You just concentrate on that. You can get through the freak out. It's a thing that, uh, that Jan teaches someone else up in the balcony when that guy's freaking out. It's sort of a, it's sort of a communion 
Mm-hmm. And this is a film that is about the absence of safe harbors, you know? Uh, they parachute behind enemy lines. That first cabin is not safe. They get in a town. The party's not safe. They, they bunk with Atta's family. Not safe. The church, not safe. Nowhere safe. But to whatever degree that you can construct safety in your mind, to whatever degree you can hold it together, the way that you do that in this film is through this meditative clip loading. And I really like those scenes. It felt a little stylish too, but not too stylish. I liked it. And I liked how physical it was. Like, Jan is in Yosef's arms. They're holding each other like brothers. Even though these are just two crazy guys thrown in on the same mission together. And it represents this intensity that I felt throughout the film. I felt on the verge of freak out throughout a lot of it because it's two hours of really high intensity stuff. And it's because you just never feel safe anywhere at any time. And in that respect, it is so effective. I really like, for as painful and terrifying as it is, why make a war film unless you're doing it to make a person feel like what it was like to be there? And this is one of those films that I think is so effective in that. I really like, I really think it did a great job with it. It was terrifying in ways that war films should be. It was stylish in ways that I like modern films to be. And at the core of it was that, that equivocation of, of, bad people methodically carrying out their evil in the face of good people trying to figure out whether or not they should resist and to what degree they should, you know? And that is, that is a thought I have today all the time, you know? Like, evil doesn't stop and think. It just keeps coming. And all of us are around our kitchen table wondering to what degree we push back or when. And that scene at the at the kitchen table where they have the meeting the night before the raid, I thought was so emblematic of that. It really gave me a lot to think about. I think this is a really good movie. Criminally underseen, evidently. I'm gonna give it a, I'm gonna give it like four and a quarter clips. It's a lot of bullets. I think it's better than good. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I really felt a, a very similar way to you, Adam, and so I will. I'll, I will come in at exactly the same rating, four and a quarter clips. Really, really nice movie that uh, genuinely surprised me, and I think uh, like it is stylish in a modern way, but also in a way that feels kind of timeless. You know, like I think that uh, I think that this is kind of like a, a classic kind of filmmaking. Uh, and and a director who uh, really knows what he's doing, and I, I think that uh, Sean Ellis is just kind of. It seems like he's pretty early in his career. He hasn't done a ton of films so far, so I'm excited to see what's next for him. Agreed. Yeah, I had a few, <clears throat> I had a few complaints with the movie, and and I think mostly it has to do with that fight scene at the end that just felt exaggerated for in the hopes that we would I don't know get get some excitement in what had otherwise been a really well paced and uh and tense dramatic espionage movie 
that's depicting real events and every other real event in the film feels very real just like what it would be like and the assassination itself or the assassination attempt feels very accurately depicted there's no yeah he apparently like uh for both that and the church standoff he used like gestapo after action reports to reconstruct it as accurately as as he could yeah and i think i think the only thing that was missing was Heydrich actually ran after them and you know kept shooting and shouting at them and stuff i mean if anything they made it they downplayed it <laughs> god that part was so wow. terrifying like not only does the plan get blown but now he's coming at you yeah right both he and his <laughs> chauffeur just yeah. like fully unloading their guns at you yeah uh pretty scary for, so for a movie to have spent so much time like getting everything, all the cars right, the the uniforms right, the just the whole feeling of it right, because it really did feel like Prague. So then to throw in this battle just felt sh- a little shabby. But on the other hand, it's a great battle scene, like a totally great battle. And the fact that it's fictional in the context of this movie, I think that I would just put an asterisk by my review and say, although I don't like that departure from what the rest of the film is trying to do, it's still great. So the gun that they're all shooting is is a gun called the Colt Model 1903. And I hate to take this away. There's a guy on our Facebook page that does a whole bit called the Guns of Friendly Fire, where he he'll describe all the guns within a film. I hate to take any any of the valor away from him by describing this gun. I hate to send anyone <laughs> to Facebook. I, I love what this person's doing. I just wish they did it on a blog or something. Right, I just wish that there was a place other than Facebook that does what Facebook does. Right. If anyone is listening that is uh, that was just sitting around thinking of how to redesign Angry Birds, let me suggest that you redesign Facebook instead. <laughs> I bet it would be more profitable. Matt Howie's great at solving problems like this yeah Come i don't on, well man. you know man how he's been spending a lot of time spending money on sneakers mm. lately anyway <laughs> the 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 model 1903 we see it a lot in this movie it has an uh, it has it's an eight shot clip in that gun so i'm going to give it four clips plus one bullet that you keep in your pocket it's that, for yourself that you don't you don't leave it in the clip to, to lose count. So you don't accidentally shoot it. That's right. You've got that one extra bullet that when you're out of bullets, you just pull that clip out and load one more in for you. So four four clips and one bullet. You guys gave it a, each a quarter clip, which is two bullets in the clip. I'm going to have one bullet in the pocket. Pretty big scores all around. I like when a film surprises us like this one. Like none of us knew of it. Saw it blind. Modern film, good movie. Yeah, and a good, I think, conversation about that little corner. I mean, World War II has so many little corners that if you if you focus on them, it feels like, well, this wasn't exactly the turning point of the war, but a fascinating, like, side war. Yeah. No side guys in this film. They're all, they're all mainline guys, I think, <laughs> throughout. Who's your guy, Ben? Uh, my guy is the dad uh, oh, that, uh, that, was that my they're living guy. with. The dad. He keeps getting, he's left out, you know. He's mad. Yeah. Hey, maybe put down your newspaper a little bit and engage with your family, dad. 
<laughs> Maybe then you'd know what's going on. Maybe you'd get a cyanide cap for yourself. Hmm. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to steal a guy. No, that's all right. That's all right. It happens sometimes. If there was resistance, if we were housing uh, soldiers who were prosecuting that resistance, my wife would leave me out of it and not let me know anything about it, you know, to protect me out as a loving act. I can totally but see also her. because I'm an yeah. idiot and I would probably tell the wrong person, you know. I can totally see her being a leader of the resistance. And pretending she might already be <laughs> pretending that she's just like going to the store to get spaghetti a lot. Yeah, my guy's the veterinarian. Yeah, he's a good guy. He arrives in the film fairly early, and then we never see him again. But he gets that moment to be useful because when you're a veterinarian in a war zone, uh, your medical expertise can come in handy. But you're also under the cover of being a veterinarian. And I think that's great. Like everything he has access to medically and uh, prescriptively, like uh, he has an excuse for because of his field. And I like that a lot. And he's also, he seems pretty skilled at the trade craft. He seems good at keeping a secret. He's very observant. He notes the guy's bag and the books in his bag and pegs him right away for what he is. And then I love that he comes back the next day with uh, the guy who's going to help them and has a gun held to his face, doesn't flinch. He's had 10,000 guns held to his face before. <laughs> he's a fucking veterinarian, and he's had guns held to his face before. Coolest guy in the movie, probably. Yeah. Really yeah. cool. Super cool guy. Liked him a lot. Uh, well, I guess my guy then is going to be the priest. And what's uh, what's cool about the priest, you know, there's a lot of papal collaboration that happened with the Nazis or at least, you know, blind eye turning. But I think, I think the Catholic church did a lot of at the level of priests did a lot of collaborating with the Nazis as much as they did. Like, Probably doing a lot of collaborating with little boys too, right? All right now. <laughs> That's a different bad thing that the Catholic church does. Um, I don't know what the, what the Orthodox church's history was within the history of Central European antisemitism and collaboration. I feel like the Orthodox Church, because it's because there's a different Orthodox Church for each people of Central Europe. I don't think they had maybe a a uniform response. Um, but in this case, you get the the great like image of a priest who's decided he's part of the resistance and. He gets his church really shot up <laughs> as a result of his Yeah, decision. but now that church is like a tourist attraction because of those bullet holes. During the gunfight, they never cut over to him after you see bullets ricochet off of the altar or something. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not there. Like, oh, what was I thinking? Uh, he does get that spectacular moment of like, Whoosh! He he pulls up the carpet, revealing the uh, the cellar door. You want that moment in your life, right? And he's got it. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Uh, and he and he's he's a tall man. He's uh, he's tall, and he has that. He just has that that Eastern Orthodox vibe. So I looked at him, and I was like, if I were in that position, I definitely would keep a. In fact, I am in my new house. I do have a crypt. I have a monk hole 
for uh, for anybody that's well. I shouldn't be saying this, right? Oh no. The thing is that <laughs> yeah, that uh, the, put it out on a podcast. Yeah, the bad guys are going to come. Uh, they're going to scour my house anyway. So you know, best of luck to you, skull hats. Well, I believe we've come to the part of the program where we select our next movie. All right, let's see here. I've got to get, I've got to move this uh, groovy girl out of the way. Hello, groovy girl. Someone has taken all the clothes off of this groovy girl, but fortunately she comes with underpants and stockings. Comes without nipples, though, John. No nipples, but she does have a belly button. What kind of weird groovy girl is that? I don't know if you've ever been with a groovy girl, Adam. (laughs) But maybe back in college. <laughs> you know, I, I I know your wife pretty well. I would describe her a lot of different ways, but I don't think groovy is the word I would go to first. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number 26 on the old green 120-sided die. Oh boy. 1981, Wolfgang Peterson, World War II, Das Boot. No, really? Great, great pick. Wagga, 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 wagga. Great pick. This is one of the greats. Or at least it was. Does Das Boot hold up? I, I went to a play the other night. It was a Ethan Cohen play, and it was like a series of, of little vignettes that weren't really related to each other, but one of them was two producers coming coming in pitching a, uh, a Hollywood executive, and one of them was like, it's like Das Boot, but on a boat. <laughs> that was his, <laughs> his pitch. And then it, they go write it, and uh, he comes back, and he's like, well, we decided to make it actually Das Boot, but on a train. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I really liked it. That will be next week. <laughs> I just searched Dust Boot on uh, on Amazon, and uh, the first thing that comes up is that beer glass that's shaped like a boot. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say Das Booty, which was one of the great 35 millimeter porn films. It's like 80% plot. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that will be next week. We'll leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Anthropoid. Jeez, that sounds like a crappy Galaga knockoff you download off a shareware website in 1997. 
comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.